comedy channel. We have no motto. The comedy channel. You laugh until you stop. Comedy is our middle name. And channel will be our last name then, right? Yeah. The comedy channel. Three-dimensional programming on a two-dimensional screen. Brought to you by a one-dimensional person. What the hell? Mottos come and go. The comedy channel. This isn't Russian. But we're always there when you need us. Get the picture? The comedy channel. The comedy channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Welcome to the Constant Comedy Podcast. I am Vinny Favalli. And I'm Art Bell. And we are here with another great episode, excited with our guest this week, someone who actually I think, I know Art, you went to school with him. He's a very good friend of yours, Michael Whitehorn. But I remember, I actually, I met him once. He set up a lunch with us because I'm such a fan of, of his work, which you will discover shortly. Was, I mean, when you know someone before they've become this, I mean, this guy is a really successful writer. I think you can say that without fear of contradiction. I mean, yeah, the, you know, the, the peak, the end game in television, if you're a writer, is to get a sh- your show that you're not just writing for another producer. It's your show. You're the showrunner. And he achieved that with uh, King of Queens, which right. was insane. Right. Like, like. That went so many years and so many episodes. Very yeah. successful show. Yeah. So, like, like back then, did you did you see that in him? Did you say this guy's going places? Listen, you know, yes. The answer is yes. And when we were in school, Mike was always either on stage or doing a short film or doing something funny, and he was just known as like the funny guy around campus. And uh, we all knew that because he told us, for one thing, <laughs> that he was, was going to be a comedy writer. He that actually was, wrote that. Was big, that was our biggest clue, I think, when he said, you know what, I am going to be a comedy writer. So, no, it, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't like some loser was, was saying that. It was a guy who was very funny and uh, very entertaining and fun to hang out with and, and certainly smart. Um, said he wanted to be a comedy writer. And sure enough, when I when we were leaving school, I said, well, what do you, you you're still thinking of being a comedy writer? He says, yep, going to LA. I'm going to get a job as a teacher and I'm going to just try everything I can to get into the business. And I said, you're crazy. And uh, he wasn't crazy. He actually pulled it off. So wait, so you think, so actors get jobs as waiters before they become actors. Do you say writers get jobs as teachers before they become well, writers? This particular writer did. Mike, Mike got a job as a teacher. He got That's amazing. Yeah, I think that was part of his part of his plan. I mean, part of his plan was I am going to get a teaching certificate so I can go out to L.A. and become a teacher. Who plans that much? I don't plan. You know, <laughs> that's, me, if I plan dinner, it's like a big deal. Yeah, I, yeah well, obviously, it, pa- like, it panned out for him. Um, I, I, can, I can't I wait to get the story. I have such a long list of questions. So let's not wait any longer and speak to Mr. Michael Whitehorn. Very excited for this. You ready, Art? I am ready. It is my great pleasure to introduce our next guest. Why is it a great pleasure? Well, for one thing, he and I have been close friends since college. And because over the course of his 35-year career, he's created, written, and produced 
some of television's most successful, most beloved, and funniest sitcoms. You may not have heard of our next guest, but I bet you've watched his shows. For example, Family Ties, the hit NBC series, where he spent four years as head writer and producer from 1982 to 86, where the ABC series, The Pursuit of Happiness, that he created and produced in 87. From 1990 to 92, he was creator and executive producer of the Fox sitcom True Colors. He co-created and executive produced South Central, an edgy dramatic half hour which aired to great acclaim on Fox in the spring of 1994. Next up, he created up and EP'd the Fox sitcom Ned and Stacy, which ran from 1995 to 97, with Deborah Messing, one of my favorite comic actors. And then in 1998, he co-created and executive produced the hit CBS show, The King of Queens, that ran on CBS from September 21st, 1998 to May 14th, 2007, for a total of nine seasons and 207 episodes. Vinny, that's a lot. That's right? close that's to Bonanza. To I think Bonanza might that's be that, ahead of him, really? but that's a lot of half hours. Now, Bonanza didn't have half to laugh, so, the, you know, he's got it on the net. <laughs> anyway, now here's where the Comedy Central connection comes in, besides knowing me. He co-created the animated web series, Baxter and McGuire, for Comedy Central's Motherlode, which was nominated for an Internet Emmy Award in 2007. What's it about? Let's just say it's kind of the odd couple meets steam bath. <laughs> you know, the 1973 off-Broadway play, Bruce J. Friedman took place in a steam bath. And, I remember uh, that. Well, did? Valerie Perrine, that's the first time I, I think I saw breasts. Oh, my God. And it was on PBS, so it was educational breasts. You know what? In order for people to understand that, we're going to start talking by start talking about uh, Baxter McGuire. Anyway, he wrote and directed. We're almost done. He wrote and directed just an left. indie feature film. <laughs> He's heard all this before. I know. He wrote and directed an indie feature film, A Little Help, starring Jenna Fisher and Chris O'Donnell, released in the summer of 2011, after winning Best Feature in several notable film festivals. And along the way, he found time to write for the Tracy Ullman Show, Cheers, and an episode of The Wonder Years, which earned him a Writer's Guild Award. Our guest is the television comedy writer, executive producer, series creator, and my friend, Michael J. Whitehorn. Michael. Michael, welcome. Welcome. Hey. Hey, Art. Hi, Benny. Good to nice see to you. Me. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, Michael, wow. This is like some career. I know. He's done so much stuff, but, man. It's like but tell me, Now I want to interview both of you for a second. All right. Where did you and Michael, like, how did you guys meet? Michael tells the story better than me. Yeah. Well, I've been telling it. Actually, I've been doing a few of these um, Zoom interviews with, with Art um, uh, around his book. And uh, so I tell the story because it was my, the first time I met Art was actually a, a wonderful microcosm of who Art not only is as a person, but the, the unique combination of, of, of talents and, and inclinations that, that, that led to the creation of Comedy Central many years later. Um, we were both signed up to be on the movie committee at Swarthmore, which was, you know, the only way to sort of see movies. You know, no one even had a TV for whenever they ran. <laughs> so uh, I was walking to my dorm and I, um, um, Mike, and I said, Art walks up to me and he's very serious. And I know who he was vaguely and vice versa, but we hadn't ever kind of hung out. And he said, yeah, I, I saw you, you, you sign up for the movie committee and um, I'm on the movie committee too. And I think we need to start uh, planning some meetings and making lists of the different genres. And he's very serious, very focused. <laughs> Sounds a lot like the podcast development part process too. Yeah, I mean, and, and I thought, Jesus Christ. I, Cause I had just like, you know, signed up to, to meet girls and, and, you know, 
and, and ram a few movies I wanted to see down the throats of the <laughs> campus. So, but, um, but as I, as we started chatting, I, I realized it's, that this guy was also very funny, you know, and I, and I said, well, it's an interesting combination of things. Usually really funny guys are just not that focused. <laughs> so anyway, so, so Art, uh, you know, later sort of combined those same, uh, the love of comedy, uh, being funny himself and love of comedy and his vision as a, as a, corporate exec type person um, into into uh, greatness. So uh, that's how we met. Oh, that's a good story. Thanks, Mike. But enough about me. <laughs> At the time, Mike, were you a self-proclaimed writer? Was that an aspiration of yours? What was your major in college? Um, well, I was a political science major. There was no... Um, <laughs> there was no way to major in anything. I was there was no sitcom. There was no sitcom yeah. degree. No, there is now. That's the funny thing. They have a film and media studies department, oh. which... Um, you know, at the time when Art and I were there, uh, would have the very notion of, of, of film and television being a legitimate area of academic study within the last act and, and, <laughs> and was, uh, it was all extracurricular. Uh, yeah, I was, you know, I, a comedy writer in that exact phrase is the only career goal I ever had in my life. Um, I never thought about doing anything else. Uh, considered anything else my parents had had, very, had a lot of different things, but I, <laughs> I, I didn't I, that was that was what I wanted to do and I credit the Dick Van Dyke show for putting that idea in my head the that you know Rob Petrie's job was comedy writer and it never would have occurred to me that that was a job a person could have were it not for that show and once I saw that I said well, that's that's it I'm in you know yeah. and that was the only and I didn't know what it involved or how to do it at first obviously but it was the only thing that really spoke how old were you then? I mean, were you, you know, I don't know. Teenager? 10, 11, I don't know. Well, you know, yeah, it depends on when you got into Dick Van Dyke, if it was like reruns or first run, because they were doing reruns even in the 60s. Of uh, Yeah, well, it was reruns mostly, I think. Um, I, I remember like pretending I was sick and staying home from school a lot. And CBS <laughs> had a sitcom lineup in the morning. And it right. started with like Leave it to Beaver yeah. and yep, Anna yep. Reed Show, yeah, which were... Yeah which were too, a little too soft for my taste, but you know, I was home and, and then it started to get a little bit like Beverly Hillbillies was in there somewhere. <laughs> and then Big Van Dyke show, which was really the creme de la creme of that morning sitcom syndication lineup. Um, and I just devoured the show. I mean, the show, I always thought the show was the first, in retrospect, the first modern sitcom in terms of like just dealing with ordinary life events without heightening the situation or heightening the premise <clears throat> and just finding the comedy in day-to-day -day stuff that has become sort of at least, you know, the attempt of, of almost all, you know, kind of domestic comedies. So uh, I loved everything about that show. And um, there was so much comedy, Arts talked about this too, there's so much comedy to be had uh, for us baby boomer kids. My parents had a full record collection of comedy albums, uh, which most, you know, contemporary kind of hip couples, not my parents are hip, but, <laughs> but you know, I started pouring through, you know, um, Shelley Berman, Mort Sahl. There's Shelly, I don't know if you can see it as a reflection, but an uh, album cover signed yeah, by Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's, a, that's incredible. <laughs> and then, then you also had access. So you have the cool record collection. Um, you have the Mike Douglas show, which is on every afternoon for 90 minutes, right? Out of Philadelphia, of all places. And that's where mm -hmm. I saw... Um, who's the guy who did Hello Mother, Hello Father? Um, Alan Sherman. Uh, Alan Sherman. Alan yeah, Sherman. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Alan Sherman. That's uh, a special person. Among yeah, that was uh, yeah, yeah. co-hosting for a about. week. You know, um, so you had your parents' album collections. You had great syndicated uh, um, early reruns in the daytime before cable. 
So that's a pretty good. Uh, but wait a second. You're, you're missing one thing. Did you know you were funny at the age of nine or 10? Did you? you know what I mean, was that yeah. Like, I mean, I, or did you not think that was important in writing a sitcom? No, I, I, I knew I was funny <laughs> because it was, it was, that was a quality I had in the complete absence of any other redeeming quality as a human being. I was not. <laughs> I was a weird kid. I was like chubby and socially, you know, shunned and uh, didn't really, my parents were good, decent people, but I just wasn't vibing to them at all uh, or my family. I was just a real weird loner and uh, comedy was it. Comedy was the thing that gave meaning to life and uh, Mad Magazine was huge for us, you know, comedy lovers in that, in, in that era. Um, and uh, when Woody Allen, you know, I remember when I was 12 years old, I saw Take the Money and Run. Oh, my favorite movie. My favorite movie. <laughs> it's, yeah, brilliant. Nice. You know, and, and uh, I, I saw a matinee with my friend Roger Levine and uh, it was like the heavens opened. And uh, when the movie ended, Roger got up, said, all right, let's go. And I said, you go, I'm staying. And I stayed for another show because I just didn't want to leave. I, I just love said, oh. that. I, I saw that on a double bill. We were going to see Monty Python, a Monty Python movie uh, in Brooklyn. And, and then they just shoehorned in Take the Money and Run. And we weren't even expecting it. We're watching this and we were slack-jawed. We were like, oh, we ended up watching Python, but it was a huge letdown in context that had I been just seen. <laughs> like, remember that scene in the movie where he, I, I, I was just quoting it to myself the other day, where he brings in that, the, the, the old timer who's talking about all the people he've, he's worked with, the great directors. I've worked mm -hmm. with DeMille. I've worked with this person and Gehrig and Ruth. <laughs> and everybody else goes, well, they were baseball players. He goes, I was also a bat boy for the New York Yankees. <laughs> like, like and where the hell did that come from? You know? But oh, that was I a, mean, a great every movie. gag in that movie, it, you know, it's just revelatory. Um, you know, and the other thing that's kind of had an influence on me, I realized later was because I, I always try when I write even, you know, heightened funny things for there to be, you know, some kind of human, uh, not quite warmth, but something that sort of grounds it even in a heightened thing. And even in that movie, if you remember the scene like where he uh, sees Janet Margolin goes to steal her purse and she cat and she sees him and he's got any he fakes it brilliantly that whole thing about how he's in the Philharmonic. And they take this walk and it's shot in this beautiful kind of, you know, the, the camera far away. And, the, and and it was really, if you look at it now, it's really kind of a beautiful scene. And Marvin Hamlish okay. did the score, right? Mar yeah. Marvin Hamlish did a beautiful music to that. Yeah. Wait a second, Jenny. Wasn't that, wasn't that film a mess? When he it was it? a mess. There's I mean, a great book like, it was like by he, Ron yeah. Rosenblum, Berg, his editor, when the shooting stops, the cutting begins. How, how, and Woody credits Ron for salvaging that movie because he had all of this footage that he didn't know what to do with. It was a mess. And, and, and Rosenblum put the music, you know, the right, the right edits to it and brought it to life. Yeah, it definitely came alive in post-production. So Woody Allen at that point sort of moved to the top of the heap for me as as, as a comedic influence. Um, you know, I mean, Mel Brooks was great. There are others, but something about Woody Allen's sensibility spoke to me and so many of us at that time because of this. You know, the idea that 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 you know making being a, a, a schlemiel, you know, kind <laughs> of something that you know could have a voice that was meaningful and and uh, you could see yourself on screen but in a way that had some some balls you know and right. and uh anyway so so there was so much comedy around and it just uh, it just sank into my bone marrow and it was all i was really ever interested in doing college was just like well you go to college i wasn't going to go become a comedy writer when i was 17 
And, uh, you know, so I went to college and majored in poli sci because I was moderately interested in it, but not, not, not very. Um, but I was doing all the, you know, extracurricular stuff like uh, stand-up comedy and putting together the variety show and talent show. You know, I was just writing for the, the comedy, like Woody Allen-esque essays for the uh, school paper. And it was just a great little laboratory for me um, those four years for comedy, <laughs> not for much anything else. Did you was, read any of uh, Woody Allen's books back then, like Without Feathers and Side oh, Effects? Absolutely. Th oh, absolutely. Those, no, no. those books are so damn funny. Yeah. Um, and they're like full of non sequiturs and just they, they, he jams like 50 jokes a page. It just and the concepts of the different essays are brilliant too. The the two chess masters who mm. are playing a game by mail <laughs> are right. basically playing two completely <laughs> different games. You know, it's just, I mean, it, no, it was all like it was it was revelatory. It was like this is this is why I this is why life exists on Earth is <laughs> is for this kind of thing to be made and enjoyed and all of that. So um, yeah, I was all in. So you, so you wrote, so your outlet for writing in college was for, uh, for the paper, right. And whatever, whatever, what other places were you able to write something down and that for people yeah. to read and performing too. I wasn't much of a performer myself, but I, I enjoyed doing it just for the. Exercise. That's not true. Actually. I, I, I'll, I'll credit you with some really funny performances. I thought you were really good yeah. on stage and other people did too. Oh, thanks. Art. Oh, they remembered your name, you know, of course, there were 400 people at the school, but <laughs> well, I knew I knew, though, I appreciate that. But I knew I was not a professional caliber performer, nor did I really aspire to be. There was something about just making it, you know, just writing it, conceiving it um, and, and putting the elements together. And I did that. There was something called the Hamburg show at Swarthmore, which is like the Hasty Pudding or the Wharton Follies that art did, that I did at Swarthmore one year. And, and that was the experience that actually solidified everything for me by the end of it i said okay i can do this and i want to do this and the idea of moving to la after graduation and making that my singular goal was was cemented at that point um and uh, <laughs> you know a lot of kids a lot of kids we talk to or people younger people talk about starting a stand-up comics in order to become a writer mm -hmm. you know their ultimate goal is to be a is to be a writer um but that wasn't going to be your route. Is do you, did did you see that as a typical route among other writers when you were in uh, doing stand up in LA? Um, no, I didn't actually. I, most of the stand ups that I knew um, were just professional stand ups. They want to be actors. Most of them they wanted to be uh, get their yeah. own show. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, and then and more and more, I think you know the idea now, like uh, with the younger generation of comedic people, they all seem to do everything. They all seem to be behind the scenes on you know on screen write, direct, perform their own stuff. Um, it, it felt it was more, I think, more delineated uh, back, back in our day. So you you knew somehow that L.A. was the place you needed to go to, right, after college? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, where, that's where the half-hour comedy business was. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I got, um, I got, Swarthmore did have one program that was useful for uh getting a job right out of college <laughs> they had very few but one was like teaching certification so i got i got certified to teach actually i got double i got to social studies and math and i moved to la and, and taught um, high school for three years while i you know i thought that would be a fun thing to do and an interesting thing to do while i was getting my feet on the ground and figuring out how to break in and all of that uh, and it was it turned out to be a great you know way to spend those those three years um so, um, you know, and then I was like at night, not 
terribly demanding job time-wise. So I had evenings to try to write and do that kind of stuff. So you did a sitcom about teaching, didn't you? Didn't you create? Something? I did. Yeah, it was one of the ones you mentioned that <laughs> if, I, if I had read your your what you, when you sent it to me, what you were going to say to intro me, I might I might have X that one out. Uh, it was. <laughs> It was uh, my first series that I did on my own after Family Ties, and it and it shows, you know, the the, the, the lack of uh, experience. It was it was uh, about a young college professor uh, played by Paul Provenza, uh, who you guys probably know. And uh, yeah, he was a big deal at Comedy Central. We hung out with yeah, him. Yeah, um, I like Paul a lot, you know. But the show just didn't quite. Um, it was okay. It wasn't bad. Um, well, you worked with uh, Brian Keith on that show, which was yeah. your first of a, a or, or one of many that we'll get into TV, you know, classic old time actors. Like what was, yeah. he strikes me as an old school curmudgeon kind of guy, but maybe that's because I just know him as Uncle Bill from Family Affair, which I still haven't recovered from that show. I'm not quite sure what that show was, but what was he like to work with? He was like, you know, look up curmudgeon in the dictionary and there's Brian Keith. He just was exactly, you know, he, he, he was just that guy. And, and, you know, at that point he was, I don't know, in his seventies, um, but, but a hard drinking, you know, kind of in his seventies. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was fine. He was very, very good. Uh, he tested me, which was interesting. You know, he would like, I remember one run through, uh, there was a scene where he's with a woman that he's dating and and he I don't know if he didn't like the dialogue or what but he said and then uh, yeah I uh, and I say a bunch of stuff here and uh, and then he like jumped down to the end of the page and didn't perform like a big chunk of the material and um and I realized I was watching this like I got those flutters you get when like you're a little nervous because I knew if I was going to be a showrunner it's my first show if I was going to really be a showrunner um that could you know run a show properly, uh, I could not let that stand, you know, and uh, you had Brian Keith, this icon, he's a big guy. And, you know, so afterwards I pulled him aside and I, I just, you know, mustered up all of my everything I could. And I, I just said, Brian, you can't ever do that to me again. You cannot, you know, kind of, you know, fuck around that way and run through or dismiss material. You have to say every word. If you have a problem with it, we'll talk about it after, blah, blah, blah. you know, and like, I don't want to say he was a bully by personality, but like people who do bullyish tactics, they they tend to back down when challenged. So, and he did, and he was much better after that. But man, my heart was beating. He was it was Brian Keith. Yeah, I, you know the, that's what actually popped out on this show, which I know was probably have all this crazy memories for you. Did you look for Brian Keith? I mean, was that no, we were trying. That part? You know, just to show you how careers go, uh, we read like every actor in that age range. It was like the older the department chair, the history department at this fictitious university and you know a curmudgeon and um and we read so many of the fine actors of the day and the network I man was another thing of learning how networks just have their own uh ridiculous sets of standards the guy that i wanted and was pushing hard for uh, and was eager to do it was martin landau but martin landau at oh, that time my god was in between his fame from mission impossible and other things and then the next wave of fame that I guess was launched by uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, yeah. So you had him but, during Harlem Globetrotters, you know? Exactly. Uh, so, Gilgan's Island and the Harlem Globetrotters. Did he really do that? Yeah, did he you? did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was, oh, he was in that. The, it was Return to Gilgan's Island, and it featured Martin Landau and the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but uh, he was not deemed as, as of any 
you know, market value. And, um, and Brian Keith was fine, you know, uh, but, and there were a few other actors too. I remember just, it was like a who's who marching through the door. I felt like Patrick O'Neill, I remember, and a bunch of other like, you know, real fine actors of the day. But um, That's a great segue though, to We're going to jump around here, but uh, yeah, yeah. the King of Queens, I'm one of the few people that, that saw the pilot and absolutely loved it. Like everyone else in the room that featured Jack Carter. Um, yeah. instead of Jerry Stiller. Now, I I remember saying, to, like, CBS was, if there was going to a network that was going to put Jack Carter on primetime, uh, e- even in the 90s, it would have been CBS, you know, because you know, it took a while for CBS. When, it, when Leslie Mumbas got there, he weaned us off of Murder, She Wrote and Diagnosis Murder and those shows, but there was still... You know, a, a lot of people saw CBS as that older type demo, um, yeah. Witness Blue Bloods, you know, which does phenomenally well. And it's an older demo. But uh, that said, seeing Jack Carter and, you know, like Jack Carter, a, a legend, talk about curmudgeons, right? The, the patron saint of curmudgeons. Did you want Jack Carter or was he just uh, the best that was available at the time for the pilot? Well, we didn't want, we wanted Jerry Stiller. And um, what happened was uh, we we met with Jerry. Jerry. Seinfeld had just ended. And so he was available. Not that he wouldn't have been available before that because he was never, it's funny how strongly associated he is with Seinfeld. But out of the nine seasons they did, I think he only did 30 some odd episodes. That's amazing. When you look at some of those, yeah. like David Putty, that character was only in nine episodes and you yeah. think he's on the entire run. It's a tribute to the writing yeah. and, the, and the acting and the, you know, the fact they built a character that quickly. I mean, that show was just such a, you know, a supernova of, of brilliance, you know, on so many levels. Uh, and coming from you, that's a that's an incredible compliment coming from you. What, what you've done, but uh, so so Stiller, you you wanted Stiller, not yeah, not, okay. And, and then um, and it's funny because I just heard the fuller story of what happened next. Because what happened at the time was that we met with Jerry, we loved him, we offered it to him, and uh, we were in negotiations, and then he abruptly pulled out, and I. Uh, you know, I'd heard, they told me something vaguely about that he, you know, traveling from New York, so he lived in New York, didn't want to move, and that too much traveling or something, but it was very vague, and I tried calling him, and he wouldn't take my call, and literally, you know, we had, we were getting to the table read date, and we, you know, Jack Carter was a very, very distant second choice. Um, we, you know, there was no great, he was, a, you know, he's a good actor, was, um, but not special, and not, um, you know, magic the way Jerry Stiller. And on a personal level, could be a handful in theory from well, what I've heard. I didn't have that experience with him. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't, I don't remember him being difficult at all. Um, but what happened was, at any rate, Jerry said no. So we went with Jack and we shot the pilot with Jack. And uh, CBS, you know, the, the history, the brief history of the pilot up to that point was that it had been developed at NBC, not CBS. Um, which Laurie Zacks, who I love, who was on your show, didn't seem to know. She thought, Actually, there was a common misconception that King of the Queens was a spinoff of Everybody Loves Raymond. So common a misconception that I yeah. actually think it hurt us in the perception in the community as far as like being Emmy worthy or whatever. Well, it was just a spinoff, you know, right, you know, right. driver. <clears throat> but it wasn't a spinoff. It was a, an NBC project and nothing to do with CBS or Raymond. Kevin had been on Raymond a few times, but it was not that character. And, and then NBC won the... The comedy mind of Warren Littlefield uh, did not feel that the premise we had and what we were trying to do with the show was adequate. And, you know, in his defense, 
uh, NBC at the time was all about friends and, you know, Seinfeld's urban, young urbans and whatever. And this, this blue collar emphasis in the King of Queens was just not what they were doing. Uh, and uh, so they went, my agent, my wonderful agent at the time, Beth Huffner, was the one who sort of engineered getting it out of NBC and over to CBS, which at the time, Raymond had been on two years at that time, and they were trying to develop compatible Monday night stuff. Yeah, we, and, we moved it to, to, it was a big deal to move Raymond from Friday after Dave's World right, to Monday after Murphy Brown. That was a big, big yeah. uh, show of support from Leslie's point of view. Yeah. So we had plans. And it worked. It, yeah. it sure worked. And because uh, Raymond was a great show and he saw that. And uh, uh, so CBS jumped at the King of Queens, but, and they were very excited to get it and Kevin and yeah, and it's all this, you know, the casting was tough and, and, and we all wanted Jerry and were disappointed. Then, then when I sent him a rough cut, uh, I started hearing the enthusiasm like drain out of their voices uh, for the project. And I was starting to really, a project that I felt like had been you know, on greased wheels to getting on the air, all of a sudden really had some doubts. And they were coming hard at Lydia Remini, like, oh, she's too mean, she's too edgy, da da da, you know, and wanting me to like use different takes of her where she's softer and all this. And I, and I was saying, guys, she's not the problem. <laughs> she's great. Um, it's, and, and I knew in my, I didn't want to like doom the thing, but I knew it was Jack Carter. And I remember sitting in a mix session before we were going to deliver the final. Uh, pilot to CBS and 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 I just had had a call with Gene Stein. Remember Gene Stein? Yeah, you know, sure. I felt like uh, this may not really happen now. And I just like threw a hail mary. I got on the phone right there in the mix session. I called Jerry Stiller's agent and I said, "Look, I know he passed on the project for whatever reasons, but as a professional courtesy, can I ask you to show him the finished pilot now, so he can just see it on screen, see who Kevin and Leah are, how they are together, what the whole thing is." And she said, yeah, okay. And uh, a couple days later, we got the call, Jerry's in. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. Wow. That's a great that's story. Amazing. That's amazing. That's a great story. And you say you didn't know that whole story? I did, what that? I didn't know, what I didn't know, what I found out uh, recently, because we did a, like a King of Queens reunion, Zoom reunion. And, um, and, and Jerry's, uh, he had three, you know, he was sort of in his later years failing health and, and he had two or three full-time people in their apartment sort of assisting him. And one of them, and I got to know them well, cause I'd go visit whenever I'd be in New York. And one of them told me that at the time, um, you know, and uh, some of it was the traveling, but Jerry was just, uh, got cold feet that he was scared that, you know, Seinfeld, he'd come in, do his crazy shtick, but here he was like one of the three person ensemble and, uh, and, and, and would be in every episode and expected to really, <clears throat> hold up you know his end of the series and and that scared the shit out of him and he um and and he backed out and then when we sent the tape you know and i requested that he look at it she said this assistant dawn said i watched it with him and ann and um and jerry was still not sure and he said ann and i said do it jerry you know that's oh, that thing. <laughs> wow jerry that you is... should do it it's good it'll be oh, oh but here's the thing Here, here's what takes the awe out of that it's like i think she quoted ann as saying It'll get canceled after one season. Just go do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, it is incredible that you got him because as I read now, these oral histories of Seinfeld, you know, he had some trouble with his lines that just, some of yeah. that great performances is just attributed to him. That staccato because he was trying yeah. to remember the line and he made it work for the character. And and as you said, I was looking at the IMDb like he's in every episode like this is a guy now yeah. who is 
you're right. One of the three people on a show that ended up having this amazing run. We wound up actually knocking him down, I think, after the first season to two out of three. Uh, because he just begged us to, you know, to travel. He was going to, he was in LA three weeks. He'd fly home for one week, fly back for three weeks. Oh, he still did the traveling. Oh, I thought he had moved out there for it. No, he never moved. So, um, so they basically, once the show seemed to be working for CBS, they kind of threw money at the problem. They let him reduce the number of episodes and then they, they flew him on a charter jet back and forth. You know, they just gave him the whole red carpet just to keep him happy, which was smart. Um, So, um, but yeah, no, Jerry, without Jerry, the show wouldn't have gotten on the air probably, or if it did, it wouldn't have lasted long. Jack Carter was not going to, you know, bring us to the same place that Jerry did. Right. Um, and so, Leah was um, terrific. I mean, the, Kevin obviously was great, but, you know, Leah was amazing in that show and she had a big history on sitcoms. Yeah. I mean, I marvel at her. She just has this like comedic acting genius, you know, the ability to, to just know exactly how to tweak things. And it's funny because I, I directed a few episodes and, um, and it gave me a very different perspective because I would normally just as, you know, as a showrunner, just go down for the run-throughs and not see the rehearsal process. We'd be in the office, you know, writing, you know, the next week show or whatever. So uh, when I was directing, I saw how they worked and Kevin would come in and he like, he hadn't looked at the script and he didn't really know what it was about. He wasn't quite sure what series he was in. He was a, <laughs> He was sort of really kind of, because he knew, he was, you know, he knew that by Friday he'd get where he needed to go. Right. But Leah came in, bam, bam. She had been working it, practicing at home, you know, for all the, they were both kind of a pain in the ass. And I say that with love for both yeah. of them, but they were both like complained a lot about the scripts and, you know, it was, and I learned early on that was their process, that they just needed to earn their, you know, work their way toward loving a script. They had to start by hating it and then learning to love it by working it was their process. Uh, Cause then neither one was like a trained actor where they, where they, you know, drill it into you that the words are sacred and you interpret them and all of that stuff. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't go to that school. So uh, yeah, but she was just, uh, she was a hard worker and really, really talented. Hey, just to change gears a second, you know, I was struck as I was um, reading your introduction, how many you, how many shows you created you know, and the idea, you know, we think of writers as writing and a, a lot of TV writers write on other shows as kind of a regular thing. That's what they do. But creating shows, I mean, where do you get the inspiration for, for the creation of a show? Do you start writing it? Do you see another show? Do you, I mean, is there anything, anything consistent about it? I don't know. It's a, I, 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 don't, I never really thought about it in, in an overall sense. I just kind of at each point where I was, you know, at a point where, I, you know, I, after I left Family Ties, um, and, you know, Family Ties was, was such a hit that even though I was still very young and new, you know, I was on Family Ties four seasons and had been working for about a year before that. So five years in showbiz coming off this hit show and I'm, 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 I'm hot, you know, uh, and, and, and given the opportunity to create shows. Uh, but I, you know, uh, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't really know how to do it. I mean, I knew somewhat had to do it, but it took me a while to really get it down. I, I think it always came for me from a core of seeing something small, what would be inside the show, a dynamic, a two or three person kind of thing, and working outward from that, as opposed to a one-liner concept and then working, digging in, and who are the characters. It was always about dialogue in my mind and about comedic dynamics and what that might suggest if you 
try to build something to contain that particular dynamic. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question. Because I- no, no, it does. Actually, it does. That, that's a, uh, that's a when, when when you were on, I, I could understand why you were white hot on Family Ties because you were there at the very beginning, the launch of the show, and uh, you wrote like a, what people think is the, the best, you know, two parter or the best episode, the Uncle Ned arc, at least the first part of the arc. We'll get to the second the return of uncle ned but um did you create that character uh, of uncle ned played by the I'm, I'm talking about a character played by tom hanks which is another reason a very young tom hanks yeah. did you create the character from your own did you say hey she needs to have a brother and should be this time? how does that develop well i you know as far as the idea for the episode um i don't remember like where that particular idea came from uh, of her brother coming in and having this issue, I, you know, it was, it was sort of like my social consciousness at the time because the, the character works for some big corporation and they're about to sort of swallow up, you know, some small little local company and then put it out of business and put all the workers out of business just for some tax write-off. And he, he you know, does something, you know, in terms of locking the files or something to prevent it. And, and then he's on the lam. I don't know. It's all... But, 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 but when you were talking, just for, to remind people, that's what the parents, Alex Keaton's parents were all about, right? That right, was their, exactly. you know, exactly. reminded people because Michael uh, J. Fox blew up on that show and suddenly it became less uh, about them sometimes. So that was a good, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. Yeah, that was uh, a transition that might have gotten very, very ugly. But fortunately, yeah. it was well managed by uh, Gary David Goldberg at the time. But um Prior to Family Ties, the first, uh, just backing up to kind of answer your question, uh, I worked, Gary Goldberg hired me for a show called Making the Grade, very short-lived. It was a CBS show, so I don't even remember it. Yeah, it was, I do, yeah. Uh, with uh, Jim Norton, was a Broadway song and dance man, Jim yeah. Norton, playing a high school yeah. teacher. And I got the job because I had just been a high school teacher, and Gary, he liked my script, but that the fact that I was a teacher, I remember at the meeting, he kept saying... Um, but you have a lot of good ideas you can bring to the show because of your teaching. And I, and I was thinking more like I'm a writer and this is comedy and I want to write comedy. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> so I wasn't picking up a hint that he wanted me to just say, Oh yes, I got a million teacher ideas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was too stupid. But he hired me anyway. And uh, you know, we, I loved working for him and he really took to me. And then that show came and went and then he was developing family ties. But when we were doing that show that making the grade, it was a one camera show and there was a lot of time when they were just shooting on set and I wasn't needed. My office and Gary's office were in the same building that contained the sound stage where Bosom Buddies was oh, being Oh, Paramount, Backlot. And I love Bosom Buddies. Yes, it was on the Paramount right by Lucy Park there. Uh-huh. And uh, I love Bosom Buddies from just watching it. And I said, oh my God, I'm now working on the Paramount lot. And here's the, so I would sort of tiptoe unobtrusively into the stage when they were rehearsing and watch um, Hanks and Scolari rehearse. And I, you know, m- couldn't believe how brilliant they were. The, every take, they ad-libbed new great lines. You know, they were just, Chris Thompson, I saw the way he worked. And uh, after they broke for lunch one day, I sort of meekly came up and introduced myself and they were both really nice to me. And, and, um, and, and then cut to a year later, uh, so Bosom Buddies is canceled, Tom Hanks, 
uh, is unless you saw Bosom Buddies, it's still not. Yeah, he was doing. He did a Love Boat. He did Happy Days episode and Taxi. He made these little pop ups. I remember in my mind, I feel like I discovered Tom Hanks the way you did. You know, like I'm the person watching Bosom Buddies, uh, a show on paper which sounded like a disaster, right? Cross dressing guys. Uh, But uh, but every time he would pop up, it would be like you could just see it was just getting bigger and bigger. So when he when you put him on Family Ties, it was like, OK, this is now, you know, big time. Yeah. I, I you know, it's so funny because I didn't have that perspective. I didn't understand the way the business works. All I knew was this guy was on a really funny sitcom. So he's a big deal, you know. And um, so when I wrote the Uncle Ned episode. Uh, Gary read it and he said, I like it. You know, who should we get for Uncle Ned? I said, well, do you know this guy, Tom Hanks? He said, because then Gary had never seen Bosom Buddies. So, and if you hadn't seen Bosom Buddies, he didn't know Tom Hanks back then. Splash had not yet. I think it had been filmed, but not released yet. So uh, I said, this guy, Tom Hanks is great. And I said, if you can't get him, the other guy's great too, Scolari. But uh, so we, but Hanks, you know, obviously did it. I only learned years later it was like a E behind the scenes thing on Hanks. And when they got to that point in his career, I was astounded to learn that he was sort of struggling at that time. You know, he didn't have a, a show anymore and he had a kid or two kids uh, from his first marriage. And, um, and that this was a big deal for him to get wow. the family ties gig. And I said, wow, I thought it was totally the opposite that we were the ones who were lucky. And I think it was mutual really. We were both very fortunate that that all worked out. So yeah, the episode became a two-parter because it was just oh, it <laughs> I overrode was so, it. <laughs> it was no, it was so great. But then you know, you you know, I don't know how to say this, but the return episode felt oh good. God, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I think the phrase <laughs> "jumped it." Yeah, jump the shark was. I uh, hear uh, him. It was invented for that episode. He's art. He's got a drinking problem, Uncle Ned. Now, and he's drinking vanilla extract. That's all I have oh to say. Oh my god, I, I can't tell you how much. And every time I hear or see anything where people say, "Oh, it's the greatest episode ever," I just like, you know. Were you there for that too? Or uh, had you yeah, left? I was there. And oh. and one of the other writers pitched the idea. And Gary loved it because Gary loved big, you know, promotable. He loved that you could get the anything you might get the Humanitas Award for, you know, <laughs> and maybe we did. I don't remember. But but as we were writing, it, I remember sitting around the table and, and they're writing this, you know, the hits Alex. Cause, and I just, guys, this is so wrong. And I and I, I was so unhappy, but I, you know, I wasn't a showrunner. I was just a writer and uh, Gary wanted to do it. So that was it. And, well, as an actor, Hanks must have loved to do all yeah that. i yeah i mean i think he, he he was happy and fox was happy um michael fox by the way the first uncle ned episodes michael fox credits um really taking his own comedic acting to another level just by working with hank seeing yeah, what sure. hank could do, seeing the moves that he had uh and that he kind of saw a whole other level of what comedic acting could be and the nuance you could bring to it um so uh, yeah, it was really a that was a great. It was it, it's it's deemed a classic, and and I love that that it's you when we're talking to you. So what? So getting one more thing on uh, two more things on, on family ties. Uh, one was how do you like what was the family ties vacation movie like? What was that? <laughs> I, like I mean I don't want to be critical about it, but I remember as a fan of the show, I like seeing the same episode every week with a different situation. I want the kitchen. I want Alex on the counter. Here you're in London. I think you shot it on film. It was what? How does that happen? Is it a money thing or is it? 
It was the worst thing ever. And I, and I, have oh, I love this of... guy. I could be, you, you, you're giving me permission to be a dick. I love it. Thank oh, you. it was just so awful. And it was also very instructive. <laughs> what happened? I went to a Nick game with, with, uh, with Michael Fox, you know, we would hang out and, uh, and we were just, I remember sitting there talking and like, Hey, we should do a movie. You know, we all, you know, we were just all flush with the success of the show. And I, I brought that back to Gary and Gary, of course, it was a big thing. The movie loved the idea. And I mean, he was buddies with Spielberg and at the time, and he was like, hey, it should be like Raiders of the Lost Ark. He, that's what he wanted to make with, with the Keatons. And <laughs> oh my God. I realized as we started to work it out and then he called Paramount and they got really excited. And, um, and as we were starting to write this thing, um, I realized what a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> um, oh my God. It, was, it was just like so beyond the strengths of what we as writers could do about what the show could do, what the show should well, be. What the characters could do. I mean, it really, I mean, you yeah. could write it, but the characters, it seemed wrong. Was, so what so happens when, when a situation like that, everybody sees like, they okay, see money. They only see one thing. It. And then, no, but, and then, and then as you're writing it, you say, man, this is just not working, but we're so deep into it. We got to do it. I mean, nobody calls it no, off. Nobody no. says, like, and they you know, it's funny. Cause when we, when, when there was a screening of it, when it was finished at Paramount up to that time. And again, I was all brand new to showbiz and, and the first few years, three years of, of family times, the execs would come around and they'd always say, it's great. You guys are great. Everything's great. And I thought, wow, they really appreciate the quality of the work we're doing here. And I, it's so nice. And then after the screening of the movie, they were like, it's great. It's so great. I was great. And I was like, oh, it's not about the quality of the work we're doing at all. Because they say the same thing when it's horrible as when it's good. Oh, as long my as God. Still making money. <laughs> well, you know, but just to, to give pay, pay the picture for the people and you had a front row seat to the seat to this. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Michael J. Fox was the breakout star of Family Ties, and he's on this great sitcom. We'll remember, famously, Brandon Tartikoff didn't want to uh, cast him. He'll never see his face on a lunchbox. That was like, I don't know if that's a true story, but that, that often gets credited to him. But um, it, then he gets cast in Back to the Future after um, they, they actually started filming that with the other actor. And then Michael gets the part. And and Gary David Goldberg figured out a way with Spielberg to accommodate that. But at one point, you're so you're working with Michael, and he's you know he's filming both right this groundbreaking movie at the same time of this at the sitcom. Was that like you must have had to adjust your schedule too? What was that like seeing how he handled all that? That must have been crazy. Yeah, you know, it was actually amazingly not that crazy from our perspective because you know Michael was whatever twenty two years old and. Uh, you know, in, in a naturally sort of energetic young man. And the way it worked for those months was uh, he would come to the set. We'd rehearse family ties until, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock. A car would pick him up, you know, bring him to the Back to the Future set. And they, they generally did all night shoots, I think, during that time. And, uh, and he would shoot all night or, you know, till 3 a.m. They would dump him back at his apartment for a few hours sleep. And then the car would come and pick him up. So he was going on, you know, a few, you know, three or four hours sleep. And I, I've heard tell there are, there were things available at that particular era that, that might assist someone. Yeah, he talks about it. He talks about it. Without, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, if there's anyone in the world who could have pulled that off, it was him. Uh, this kid who's just had an explosive energy to him. And, you know, it's funny, we once got a hold of a, of a little clip from the when we were in the writers' room of, of the sitcom he had done in Canada before he came to, to America to try to make it here, and it was called Leo and Me, and he was at that time 
even shorter, you know, he was like five feet tall and had really long hair and he was this character. And we watched this scene of 14 year old Michael Fox coming into the scene and saying all this, watch it going, man, he was great in that too. You know, wow. he just, he, he just kind of jumped off the screen at you. So, uh, so we were able to do the show pretty much without interruption and his performances, as I recall, were, 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 you know, just as good. He, he could pull it off. And then, uh, I remember when we shot that terrible movie uh, in London. We Which is how back. the movie got done, by the way, because you got a guy now who's starring yeah. on the sitcom on the yeah. number one movie. Spielberg's involved. Yeah, you want to go to London for a TV movie? Fine, you know we'll do Here's, it. Here's, by the way, was was the craziest movie, uh, craziest moment in the making of the movie in London. <laughs> There's a scene where, and I'm really like cringing as I'm saying this. Where they're like wearing wigs, like in the House of Lords, because they have to sneak into the House of Lords. I mean, this was—it's like a Lucy this, episode. Oh, we didn't say that's not in making it ludicrous, and um, but not the good kind of ludicrous. And and then there's and then the bad guy gets the microfilm and is running, and they're chasing him. But we wanted—we wrote it that they're chasing him through the streets of London with these wigs on, which were you know funny in our in our imagination anyway. And, but the wigs wouldn't stay on. They kept flying off and the hair person tried to get it on and, and they couldn't get it to stay on. And, um, and finally they gave up, we were losing the light. So there's the scene where they're running through the streets of London, chasing a guy, holding their wigs on with their hand <laughs> for no reason. I mean, there's no reason you would keep the wig on in that moment in so the they film, could be, but they- So they could be easily identified by the guys chasing them. I guess them. so. <laughs> Michael, here's what I love about you, man. So you're first of all, you're brutally honest, which is awesome, which is perfect for a podcast. Uh, but so Michael J. Fox ends up staying with the show after having not only Back to the Future, but then Teen Wolf be becomes a monster. But you leave. <laughs> you know, that's the funny thing. Yeah, you, you, you leave the show. Did you leave for something like, were you, I guess you were hot because you had written, you, you were writing on a, on, a, on a hit sitcom and in the world of writers and great agents, like you said about your agent, you were you were marketable, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a man on a mission, you know, I, I just wanted to, I loved Gary and I loved working on Family Ties, but we did, by the end of the fourth season, um, I was just itching to kind of get out there and see what I could do on my own. And even though I wasn't, in retrospect, I had a lot to learn. The only way I could learn it was by doing it and not doing really good work yet. Um, I wasn't going to learn anymore by staying with Gary and working on Family Ties. Um, I had to kind of get out there and make my own mistakes and, 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 and take my own lumps. And um, I just felt it was time. I felt like, honestly, Family Ties as much as I love it, I felt like we had sort of peaked in terms of the quality of the, you know, the, the freshness of the stories right. that we could do. And by the way, I feel that way about my own, you know, King of Queens. I feel that way about um, Seinfeld, all shows that I love. I feel like after about five seasons or so, there's generally an inevitable loss of, of, of quality just simply based on the fact that you've explored that world so fully already. And the characters are, in some cases, you know, aging in a way that makes it hard to believe that they're still held together in the same container right, you started right. with. They're kids, they grow up, whatever it is. Um, so uh, I felt like Family Ties was, was sort of, I had, for me personally, gotten the most juice out of the fruit that I could. And, um, and my relationship with Gary, you know, it was great being, a, you know, having a mentor like that, but I felt like the time 
of, of being in a mentor mentee dynamic was, was over for me. So, um, yeah, I left and went out on my own with Gary. It's like you graduated, you know, that was another college for you. Uh, you, you wrote on two, you were gun for hire, which must be interesting for you sometimes, you know, when you're coming into a show and you don't have the responsibility of all dealing with the network, but you, you, you wrote a, a great episode of Wonder Years and two great episodes of the Goldbergs, which have seemed to me very similar shows in a way, you know, different decades. Uh, for Goldbergs, you you featured George Siegel, I think, in two of in the two episodes you wrote. He seemed to have a bigger part than normal. What was it like working with him? That must have been like a, a real treat. Oh yeah, it was great. I mean, he, you know, he's for for folks of our generation. You know, he was a big movie star, and, right? And, and and a really interesting kind of. I mean, the seventies. You know, I don't know if you read the Richard Biskin. Is that his name? The book. Uh, um, yeah. About cinema in the 70s yep. uh-huh. and how Hollywood was making really really interesting nuanced great movies in a way that it never has re- returned to doing since then um and uh, George Siegel was in a bunch of them <laughs> you know in California split he and, was in every movie there was a time when he was on the Carson show promoting a different movie like every other month it was um, yeah. and his range was incredible yes yeah, incredible I just watched when he died, I kind of did a little deep dive into his cinema history. I watched the first movie that he had like a starring role in called King Rat about yeah. it was just a really oh, grim yeah. movie set in um, a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And, and he was a guy who somehow while everyone else around him was starving and whatever, he would sort of had it all sussed and knew who to bribe and knew who to work and, you know, kind of a soulless, you know, villain type of guy at the center of the movie. And, uh, and he was great. He was great. Um, I read afterward, there were all these other bigger stars they wanted at the time. And they all probably would have been good. Brando and people like that. But um, he was great. And uh, I just always loved his whole kind of quality. Where's Papa is, if we're talking about iconic yeah, classic comedy, movie. you know, was um, as good as it gets. Uh, it was great working for him. He was, you know, he was on his, you know, he was old and, and didn't have quite the same stamina. And I don't know if it was his choice or Adam Goldberg wanted him, but he played everything very broad. And I, I tried to write in the episodes I wrote. And I was a consultant there. I was sort of on the staff for, for a year. And uh, I tried to write to the George Siegel I remembered, but it all kind of wound up being a little bit more like, you know, everything else he did on the show, which was good. But I, you know, he didn't have the same kind of I don't know, different little notes to play on the piano that he had had earlier in his in his career. Um, but it was fun working, knowing him, working with him. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And as the as a writer on on, uh, uh, on on a show like that where you're coming in and you're consulting, whatever, you know, TV really is a writer's medium, it seems, the sitcom, but you can't really direct them, right? So it's really like you're, you've written it, you've had the conversation with Adam Goldberg, I guess, yeah. the, the guy who created the show. But at a certain point, whatever unfolds on the set, can you control that a little? As a little well, the, the way it worked down, you know, it was that there'd be a... Uh, Lou Schneider, who you also, I'm sure, know well. Uh, Lou, Lou was um, uh, the sort of guy on set to sort of from the from the writer producer side to sort of oversee right. whatever the director of the week was doing, and then also the writer of that week's episode would be down there. So I got to be down on set during the weeks that mine were getting shot. But you know, the the, the schedule's tight. There's a lot of setups. Right. There's only limited opportunity to walk in and say, um, you know. Uh, there was one thing with um, with um, Wendy, um, 
I always want to say Willie McCovey. <laughs> Willie McCovey. Wendy um, McCovey. Uh, but where the whole thing was blocked, I had her like frantic running around in the script and, and it was blocked that she was all in one place and it was all ready. They were lighting it. And I walked in, I said to the director, I just think we're missing out on a huge opportunity here to have her. The phone rings and then she runs back to yell at this and, and move the scene around. And the director, uh, Michael Patrick Jan, is really, really good, who uh, he, he, he changed it. And, and that was, but uh, you got to pick your spots and stuff like that in one camera or else you'll just. Yeah, ride. yeah. There's, there, that's, a one, that's a one camera yeah. show, which, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. King of Queens had an audience, right? Yeah, was, that was a moment. My son's yelling in the background. Yes, I had an audience. Um, um, so, so, so that was that must have been exciting with King of Queens because there's I don't know if you had a theater background, but there is something about like you're getting enjoyment as a writer creator of a live audience and then of this polished edited product. That must have been a treat for eight. Yeah, years. no, it was great. Well, Family Ties, you know, was also right. You wedding, had that too, so. right? Yeah. So I, I most of what I did was actually um, multicam and. Um, yeah, I mean, the audience, you know, people, you know, was, oh, I hate the show, those are laugh tracks, those laugh tracks. And, you know, you know, sweetened laugh tracks for stuff that isn't funny at all is, is very, very annoying. But I really feel like for this form, the genuine audience laughs that a good performer with good writing, right. good directing will get, uh, create a particular kind of, I'm not saying it's better or worse than one camera, but it is its own thing. And when done well, you know, Seinfeld, obviously Kramer would come in and do those entrances. Yeah. And, you know, they were brilliant and they'd get a huge laugh and it wouldn't have been as much fun if it was a one camera thing. And immediately after he does it, the next person talks and there's no pause. And, you know, it was really the, the, you felt like you were part of that studio audience participating and you had time. If it was really funny, you as a viewer at home had a few moments to laugh without missing anything. So, um, I'm a big fan of the form and the performers would often get really energized by it. Uh, and, and like Kevin James, you know, is one of those people just, well, he's really a stand up. Yeah. By the, yeah. By the audience. Michael Fox too, would just come up for the audience and, uh, you know, do, do things that we hadn't seen before just uh, instinctively. Let me ask you this. You're talking about, um, we've been talking about comedy and sitcoms and everything else. You changed gears a little bit there in the middle with South central, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, was that, that, on purpose or did you back into it or you thought okay time for a change that wasn't a sitcom no it wasn't i i well it was and it wasn't i i had always kind of just i i really have been very very fortunate because with with one exception everything i've done in my career has been something i've done because it appealed to me creatively and i wanted to do it and i was excited about doing it you know, I see so many other, you know, writers, producers in comedy who by necessity uh, or just the paucity of good shows, you know, wind up working on stuff that they don't really believe in or care about. And they just come to work and they, you know, are kind of bored, but they do their jobs. And I, I just have really been excited about everything I've worked on, even though a lot of them didn't turn out as I had imagined or as well as I'd imagined. It's still the idea of trying to get it there was thrilling to me. So um so with South Central, uh, right after the, uh, you know, Rodney King verdict and the uprising in LA, uh, I had just, you know, started thinking in my mind, if you could use the multi-camera form to tell a story about, because all the, you know, most of the, it's just what's happening was maybe uh, an exception, but generally all of the uh, situation comedies with, with all or largely uh, black casts were, um, 
you know, kind of a nice sort of suburban cleaned up sort of, you know, thing, uh, you know, that wouldn't really reflect the, the lives that most black people in, in, in American cities were living. And I thought, what if we really get in there and, and be very honest about it, but there's still plenty of humor to be found uh, and do a show that's very gritty and real about like life in this neighborhood where all this happened. Now, you know, by that point, the phrase South Central had become a household word, word as, a, as a result of the, all the you know, events there. And, uh, we, you know, push forward on it and CBS bought it and then didn't buy it and then Fox picked it up. And uh, I, I'm really proud of the show. I think we did the show we wanted to do, but um, it was a really, that was a very, very tough thing to try to sell or I'm you know, amazed we got as far as we did. Ralph Farquhar was my partner on that. And, um, uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was a hybrid of some, it was very dramatic in moments and comedic where, where it could be or wanted to be. Uh, I don't know, how, however successful it was creatively, it was in the eye of the beholder, but I was really happy with that. The show got great reviews. Yeah. And does that make you nervous sometimes? Like, fuck, you know, I'm going to be a critical darling and you worry about mass acceptance, at least for a TV show. Um, I don't know. I remember being really pleased by it and hoping yeah, it would translate into, into viewership. The show actually got a lot of backlash from uh, local uh, community leaders in South Central who uh, felt that it, because of plot, you know, the, the, the woman, uh, the lead, Tina Lifford, uh, her character was a single mom with three kids and the, the father was absent. We got uh, Vondi Curtis Hall to play the dad in a future episode comes back. But uh, at first, and, and the idea of this, this fatherless, the, the absent father was a negative stereotype that right. we were perpetuating, that they were very angry about. And the irony of that is that I, Ralph and I spent a year going to South Central, talking to people at churches, schools, really, really did our homework, even though Ralph had grown up in, in a similar kind of environment in Chicago. Uh, and we didn't go in with, with that single mom or any particular thing firmly in mind. What made us go in that direction was the predominance of that. And, and statistically, I think over 50% of the um, households in South Central LA were, were one parent households. And almost all of those were the mom was the parent. And so it was just the reality that kind of kept, that, that, right. that screamed out at us that, that sort of demanded to be in the show because of its prevalence. And then we got all this backlash, which um, I don't know how much that wound up hurting the commercial prospects. What really wound up hurting the commercial prospects is that we lost our uh, ally at Fox, Lucy Salhaney, who was a very progressive, smart executive, but there was all kinds of ugly power struggles going on at Fox at that time with Barry Diller and I don't know. I don't even really remember. Yeah, there's but. so many things that people aren't even aware before a show gets to their TV set that they have to deal with. You know, if an executive develops something but then leaves, you know, yeah. not invented here, the new person doesn't want that. Did you feel like you were outside your comfort zone when you were doing that show? No, I, mean, was that a I didn't. I didn't at all. I, I really felt like um, it was in my comfort zone even more than sometimes in some ways than when, you know, you're doing a normal sitcom and need to, you know, get those jokes to three jokes per page. Um I, I felt like, you know, getting into the, the more dramatic and the more melancholy, I would say is even a, a better word to describe what was in that show that was that isn't typically in sitcoms was the melancholy. Uh, that was really a color I loved writing in, painting in, whatever, <laughs> be pretentious about it. Uh, so no, I, I love doing that. And I 
would do something like that again if the right kind of idea came along. Is there a straight line between that and the and the movie you did? Yeah, I did uh, this. Yeah, I did this feature which you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Jenna Fisher. Um, yeah, it was also very melancholy. Uh, I guess. Yeah, I I was a I was a pretty melancholy kid. Um, and and I, you even found the melancholy and take the money and run. So yeah, you were definitely very sensitive. You know. Well, it's uh, the cocktail of that with comedy is yeah appealing to me. So uh, yeah, that movie, the movie I did, it was funny. It was a good movie, but it was really not a comedy. It had some comedy, had some jokes or lines in it that were comedic. But because Jenna Fisher was the star uh, and she was known from The Office uh, and there was enough comedy in the movie that the, the distributors felt justified, it was sort of put out there as a comedy. And it wasn't. And that was really, and we got a lot of backlash. And like on, it was on Netflix and it was, a, you know, a little help, comedy. And then I'd read the comments after it was up for a few months. This isn't a comedy. What the fuck? It's not a comedy. <laughs> and I make them change it. You know, I, I said, guys, it's not. Just say dramedy or whatever you want to say. I called it a melon comedy. Oh, that's. <laughs> oh, wait a second. Did you really? Cor Pat Pending <laughs> coined that. That's awesome. Oh, man. That's great. It was a good. It was a I'm great seeing movie. that Ron really Liebman. That I haven't seen the movie, but Ron Lee. You work with Ron Liebman. That's. Yeah, Ron Liebman. Yeah. That's incredible. And Lizanne Warren. Yeah, I do need this. Is that on Netflix still? So I think you have to actually buy it on Amazon, but I'll, I'll for a couple of bucks, but I'll, um, Oh no, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'll to be support. happy to send you a Vimeo link and save you the, uh, three ninety nine. <laughs> Do you, um, I mean, are films something that you'd want to get into more, uh, or does it make a difference or even theater? Have you thought about that for your theater? No, I feel a little intimidated by that. It's, it's appealing, but I wouldn't even know. I don't know anyone in that world. And I, I listen, I did it. I still don't know anyone. I mean, I, what I love about theater is there's no person to sell your show to, you know, especially with your credits. I mean, if you have an idea and, 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 you know, you pull actors together, you do readings, you know, you could, you could mount even an off Broadway or the LA version of off Broadway show. I think uh, Ken Levine, who you probably yeah, worked Ken with Levine. on cheers. Yeah. He, he does a lot of that in addition yeah. to that, but you know, I mean, just to get your stuff out there, how, how, when, when you're in between shows, like what are you working on now? What are you doing? Well, now? I'm, um, I, I have a movie that I wrote that I'm trying to put together and it's, you know, trying to put together anything in COVID year, I guess is everyone. I hear the same complaints. It makes me feel a little better. Yeah, but it's about it's like a, a, a rom com. I tried deliberately tried to make it more comedic and commercial than my first movie, but it's between two sixty year olds, a, a woman who is a doctor and was married to you know like I thought it was interesting to check in on what happens to these May December romances. You know, twenty five years later, you know when she was thirty two, she married a fifty seven. That's guy. a great idea. You know, he was like a you know really successful, good looking guy, and then now she's about to turn 60 and her husband's 85 and like sinking into dementia and she's vital and vibrant. And, uh, and then she develops this relationship with a, with a security guard, the guy in the armed patrol company in her neighborhood that, you know, in our neighborhood, you could text the driver to ask a question or something. So they develop this text relationship and it turns into a personal relationship and they're both the same age. They're both about 60. So, um, but I'm finding, interestingly, that despite the fact that in the streamer world, um, there's such a huge number of people over 50 that, that watch. And, and honestly, people over 50 may never set foot in a movie theater again. Uh, you would think that the streamers would be developing um, 
programming and, and films aimed at that audience. And, uh, but, but so far there is no overall sort of corporate move that way. So it's, it's been tough, but I'm still right in the midst of trying to make it happen. That's, that's good. It's, I mean, I would imagine it's not a big budget film, right? So you could probably, no, this would be uh, I mean, depending on the level of, of talent you get, but it, you know, it's like a $12 million movie. Kind of. It's not family ties goes to London. Oh God. Jeez. Let's <laughs> hope not. <laughs> No, I think that may no, it, that may have just actually hit total bottom. There is no lower than that. So. <laughs> I'm going to watch that if I could find it. It's probably oh, on Paramount Plus. I, I I don't remember seeing it actually. I remember hearing about it. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting that you know you're talking about the uh, streamers not going for the older audience. And listen, Vinny and I grew up in television, the same television you did, where it was all about young people. I mean, they never even thought about and. CBS drifted old and everybody was like, oh my gosh, what are they going to do? They're going to be out of business or, you know, they're so old uh, and they weren't. But um, that, that was all, that always fascinated me about television because there was really no reason for it. Yeah. Uh, and the original reason was that the advertisers thought that older people would not change brands. They were so grooved in what they were buying. There was no reason to, you know, to uh, have them as an audience, just work on the kids. Cause they're, you know, they'll buy anything. They're idiots. I don't know. <laughs> but that was that was the that was the thought. And it just never really went away, even though it's been disproven. Well, it's not even that it's disproven. It just doesn't apply in any way, shape or form to the business model of the streamers. Uh, you know, there's no advertisers. It's just a question of who buys the subscription, which I would think they you'd be more likely to to entice a person over 50 with a you know a little bit of money to 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 become a uh, subscriber. Uh, than a younger person who who may just be trying to find someone else's password to use to watch the thing. Like my kid. <laughs> um, I keep seeing all these things on my HBO, you know, app of, well, I didn't watch that. And they're, oh, your kid's watching it with my <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, don't don't, don't judge me by my watch Please history. Because <laughs> I have kids. Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's I, it just amazes me the momentum in that system. Um, I like, I like, uh, Maybe Vinny should uh, show you around the old theater world. I mean, Vinny did did a really crazy and great musical from not, and you had. No I did it out of Vinny. nothing. I I wrote it with my writing partner. She and I, you know, we we did it, and it's a musical, which is it's stupid to even consider doing that. And you know what the hardest part, Michael, was? It, you would think writing a story with eighteen songs would have been the 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 most difficult part. Apparently, that was the easy part. The hard part was, yeah. There is no resistance, but you got to do. You do have to find the money to mount it. Now, thankfully, I was able to have the pleasure of seeing the show mounted because I, I funded it. You know, I did a Kickstarter and I got like a hundred thousand dollars from that, and I put another, I think about two hundred fifty myself, and then we did a two week run off Broadway, and it was amazing. You know, it was really an incredible experience. And I was very proud of it, but to, you know, to keep it running, the marketing, you know, and you need deep pockets just to, you know, just to run it every, yeah. every it's, eight shows a week. It's a different business, but, but, but if you have a small comedy, something that involves a few actors, just cause you're itching to write something, I, I push for it, man. Cause it's like, you know, the thing that the movie that, the, that I just told you about, actually someone read it and said, this would make a great play. It's easily adaptable. There's no. It I sounds very Neil that. Simon, like I conceptually. That, that's why. That's why I'm dwelling on this. I'm hoping you're going to say, "Hey, maybe if you if you play, if I can't if you want to share it, it, I'd love to read it." Oh yeah, absolutely, Mike. Um, we're we're sort of getting down to the end here. Is there anything? Say it was your podcast, and uh, Vinny and I were on as guests. 
Well, what, what's the thing you would be asking us right about now towards the end of the podcast? Well, well, I, thought, I don't know if this is asking. I, I thought uh, you'd want to talk about the my my one go around with Comedy Central, actually, even though it was after. Oh yeah, after you your, know, that's right. Uh, it was, yeah, you we said we would to. talk about it we later, and then I you know, didn't bring it up. I know you got to you got to describe yeah, that. Was, Remember, I thought it was. I said a combination of the Odd Couple and uh, and. Uh, the Bruce J. Friedman. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. If there's a but I, I don't, I don't, I, I wondered if you would think. I, I missed this completely. I was not there, right. so Comedy Central was dead to me. I'll tell you, dead. But, but uh, Art was telling me the idea with Nick Bakai, who we love. So, yeah, tell, yeah, yeah, tell us about that. Well, it was. Uh, I don't think it's anything to be coy, uh, Art. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a animated uh, eight episode animated series about uh, a, a guy's balls. It was just <laughs> the only characters were. The, the two balls and it, you know the whole thing took place in the immediate vicinity of where they were it was and, a two uh, shot all was it always a two shot of the ball <laughs> no we did we did cover it uh, <laughs> but it was called the, the thing evolved we were on the family tie set nick Bakai, who you guys obviously know and i think you're going to interview was the writer on family ties and and then our director was sort of showing off he had this bling because he played high stakes poker and he had won a lot of money from uh Toby McGuire and uh, and someone named Baxter. And he said, oh yeah, I got this ring and thing. I call this one Baxter and it was Baxter and McGuire. And Nick says, oh, that's what I call my balls. You know, just as a joke. And and I just also, we should do that as a show. Baxter and McGuire about a pair of balls. And we wound up, I told Art and Art con connected me with uh, Tony Fox, I think, who then Lou Wallach, who was at Comedy Central yeah. at the time. And at that time, as you I imagine know, uh, they were launching this thing, Motherload, or going to launch it, which was like the, the this was still early the internet years. And their thinking was, what is a, a, a channel, a TV channel's website for? What do we use the website for? And there was at least one group that felt we use it for original content. And we put original content on there and people come to watch that. And it becomes even more equal to or more than watching on TV, the shows. So... Uh, we were part of the original wave of, of content that they bought to do this animated uh, Baxter and McGuire about the balls. And this was going to be a big thing. So we, we made the series. We got Nick did one of the voices and, uh, and Dana Gould was the other. And oh, he's and, great. Uh, he was. And one of the things, if you watch the eight episodes are on YouTube, Baxter and McGuire, the adventures of Baxter and McGuire is the full name. And that's important because their adventures, we were absolutely the one rule we made for ourselves had to be, the actual adventures that a real pair of testicles would have. Oh my God. For example, in the first episode, one of them gets hit by a soccer ball. Uh, <laughs> and that's like, a, the other one's like, Nick, you know, he's, and then, uh, <laughs> we got a ball down. Yeah. And then in one is blue, it's about blue balls, uh, where they're all revved up, ready to go. And the whole thing is the plug is pulled. <gasps> they're just crazy. And, uh, and, and, and purple and, and, and vain. <laughs> And one, uh, those, you know, so, so they're all about the actual adventures of balls. And anyway, so we, we made these episodes and we're really excited about them. And Motherload is going to be the big thing. The whole website's about Motherload. And when we finally launched and you went on the Comedy Central website, I was looking, there was a big promo block for The Daily Show and Colbert. And I'm thinking, where's the Motherload? And I go to this, there's a menu tab, like videos or something like that. And you drop down menu and then da, 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 mother load. Da, 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 da. So I was looking for it and I had trouble finding it. 
might, you know, the chances of finding it if you didn't know it existed, if you went to the website, were right around zero. Um, and if you did know and were looking for it, it maybe up to 50%. <laughs> so whoever at the at Comedy Central in 2006, I want to say, uh, was, you know, I'm not sure who's in charge, but the, the, the faction that, that wanted the, the website to be more about promoting the on-air stuff clearly won. <laughs> right. And so, um, so unfortunately, that didn't get quite the uh, exposure that we would have wanted, but it's on YouTube and anyone listening it's really, it's one of the things I'm proudest of, this, of all the things I've done. I love this. Is, and you know something, you telling it I, is I want to write. As, yeah, yeah, I want to write it's for so it. so good. I want to, like, <laughs> I could see the box set. This is some Wait set of second. balls. Do you have the rights to it? Can you, can you, well, I have, yeah, I have the rights to the characters. Comedy Central owns the actual episodes, but I have the rights to the character. And I already written the, the season two season opener, which was about the guy that they're attached to uh, wading into the ocean. And, uh, and as the water's coming up, you know, and they know that cold water is about to hit them. And it's, we sort of, it was sort of like Titanic, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, like dreading it. Um, so it was all the actual adventures of real balls. How old is the, the, the guy with the balls, the character? Did you, did you establish that? The young guy. We make him very uh, like generic and bland. You see him at the very beginning and then zoom into his crotch to begin the episode. Because no, you could do, I mean, uh, really a very special balls episode would be leading his <laughs> balls, you know, where, you know, we're getting, you know, they're getting lower. Uh, but when, when he decides to have a child and, you know, all the stuff. Oh, that could, goes, oh, this could go many, many seasons. <laughs> really? This is very, very deep. All right. We should yeah, talk about maybe cuts. We are going to talk about it. It was great. And uh, there should be more outlets for things like that. It's really a shame that Comedy Central didn't pursue that um, mother load thing because that would have been a great opportunity to showcase stuff like that, but especially that one. I just want to say, Mike, I, you asked me something I didn't answer. And I just want to say, I would ask, okay. I would just, I don't know, it's not a question, but I just think uh, you guys, what you did in the early days, Comedy Central, just your love of comedy, your love of, 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 of making something exciting and new, uh, was was massive, you know, and 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 the role that Comedy Central has played in the world of comedy is is you know monumental, and you just created a, a great great thing, and you're to be applauded for that. And I just love this podcast. I've listened to most of them so far, and really really Thanks. funny. And so great work, guys! Really good. Thanks, Thanks so much. Man. That that I will influence a... what we say when this is done, and this is our night talking about you. <laughs> Oh, uh, this is Michael. This is you elevated our podcast with your presence. Seriously, it's uh, I'm, I'm very excited for everyone to hear this. This is great. Yeah, so thanks for being here, and uh, and we'll see you around campus. Right. <laughs> see you on the quad. Well, no surprise there that that was a very entertaining interview. <laughs> it's always fun to talk to Mike about anything. I know well, you, you know, guys I mean, I talk a lot. We, we do. We talk, you know, we pretty much talk every week or more. And uh, unlike unlike what we talked about in the podcast, we often talk about, you know, like important stuff, politics and right. and uh, state of education in the world and stuff like that. He's just a great guy to 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 knock, you know, to knock it back and forth with, um, especially since, you know, we we used to do that in college in our dorm. So we basically we just <laughs> we just extended that whole dorm experience throughout our entire life. That was like a Zoom. I know I know he's made some appearances with you for your book, like helping promote the book, which is great. Yeah, that's true. You know what? He um, I, I, it's it's actually been a few times, including one for our college for Swarthmore College. They asked us to um 
to appear on a Zoom talk. And Mike and I did it together. And Mike interviewed me about the book. And then I interviewed him a little bit about his career choices. It was really fun. Yeah, that, that I, I can imagine after having experienced it with you two guys right now. Um, so we've the mystery of the teaching degree, it did pay off even within the career. It wasn't just a reason to get to LA, right? Gary David Goldberg tapped him for uh, an early job because of his teaching background. So that was that was, that was was a smart move on his yeah, part. And I, you know what? I, it just, I know this is a little philosophical, but I, I always say this to people, uh, especially young people who are asking, like, how do you get into the business? And, you know, how'd you end up doing what you're doing? And I always say, you know what? Whatever job you have, is going to help you in your next job. So don't say, Absolutely. oh my gosh, I'm just this and I want to be that and it's not even related. Everything's related. This is life. Everything's related. So whatever you're doing, think about how that can help you in your next job. Yeah, it's part of your story. It's the people yeah. that you meet along the way. Listen, when I started um, at Comedy Channel, I was like operations traffic guy. You couldn't be further from the creative process. I'm thankfully I got pulled into meetings and I was able to show that side of me, which ultimately got me into programming. But my, my career started in 1979, right? Background back, you know, back office traffic, commercial integration, that kind of stuff. And, and it was, wasn't until like 1994 that I became into the creative side. So imagine saying someday I'm going to get there. It took 14 years, you know, to get, to get to that part, but I did, I did it. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, we're getting a way too deep and philosophical for a constant comedy podcast. So, all right, but you know what? It's our podcast. We can do whatever the hell we want. It's our podcast that we can cry if we want to. And we will. <laughs> this is the philosophical Vidi Favali and the very philosophical Art Bell signing off for the Constant Comedy Podcast. See you next week. Bye. How was that?